Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. I made it to Nashville. It's weird to be taping on a Monday, but it's uh, good to hear your voice. How are you? I am excited to join you in Nashville tomorrow. I got my antigen test. I am footloose and fancy free, but I'm not <laughs> quite ready to go boot scooting. Unlike you, you've already got your boots. <laughs> yes, the boots are on and they'll stay on even if I don't know how to line dance yet. Yeah, uh, we're talking about the ISA conference, International Studies Association conference. It's the first time it's in person in three years. We missed out on the turns in Hawaii and in Vegas, but now we're going to Nashville, all places, all looking forward to some barbecue. What are you doing there this week? Well, I have three panels. One is virtual. That's the weird thing about ISA this year is that even though it's it's back in person, there are still a bunch of panels that are online. So starting with an online panel and then two others that are in person, one that is a panel related to a book project I'm doing with JC Boucher, Justin Massy, and Jonathan Paquin on the US-led global coalition against ISIS. And another panel on NATO and Heidi Hart and I are updating our research on women, peace and security and, and NATO with a focus on and gender integration in the armed forces. What's on your agenda this week? Well, I already had my first panel today. It was a virtual panel on comparative civil relations. I was the Canadian civil guy. There was somebody doing Germany, Sweden, France, and I'm trying to think if there's any place else. And Risa Brooks, who's I'm a Brook follow the way she thinks about civil relations, was the chair. It was kind of strange because you can't see the audience. You don't know how big the audience is and the system is kind of not that great. And then later this week, I'll be on a panel about how did COVID affect civil military relations and how did civil military relations affect COVID responses. And I've got another panel later in the week where I am a chair and discuss it. And it'll be good to spend a lot of time meeting up with people, both people I've met before, friends, but also new people. The joy of Twitter is I've used that to reach out to people that I'd like to get to know. And so my calendar is filled up very quickly. So I will not have any time to go to the water park at the uh, resort that this place is at. So I am looking forward to a lot of barbecue. Yeah, that'll be a big part of the week. And one thing I always find funny about these conferences is that, you know, you have these folks who are interested in international politics in, in one place for an entire week, but sometimes we get actually disconnected from the events of international politics while we're there in our panels talking about our research. But I think this year will be a bit different because the events of the day have been so shocking since mm -hmm. Russia invaded Ukraine that it will be, of course, a major topic of discussion, I suspect, in almost every panel. I think it'll come up a lot, but it'll it will be hard to stay connected. I know that I will be doing far fewer media appearances while I'm in Nashville. 
talk, talking about this thing. I was at the parliament last week testifying before the defense committee on threats to Canada and Canadian readiness. So yeah, my time at, as an influencer will, will have to cease once I get to hang out with all the brisket eating IR people in Nashville. Can you give us the 30 second summary of your appearance in front of the parliamentary committee or some of or some stuff that our colleagues said? Sure. It was me, Jim Ferguson, who's at uh, University of Manitoba, and Rob Huber, who's at Calgary. And they are much more Arctic focused than I am. So they got most of the questions because the committee was really focused on the threats to the Arctic. I had the caveat in the front of my notes that I, or my statement that I'm an Arctic skeptic, that if the Russians can't support the logistics of their troops in a country immediately next door to them, they're not going to be able to support doing stuff on the other, other side of the Arctic from themselves. So that was one thing I said. I suggested that the biggest threats to Canada, the Canadian Armed Forces and to Canada, are climate change and the personal abuse of power crisis that the Canadian Forces have been facing. And I didn't get as much pushback on the whole, there's an abdication of civilian control of the military line that I had. I did get one question about, well, should we have the Ombudsman report to Parliament? And since all my work on, on comparing the world's parliaments have indicated that we should not expect much from the Canadian Parliament on these things, I try to couch my uh, response carefully since I was talking to the people that I was thinking were not all that helpful. Because as I shocked one person in my panel today, if you ask the Canadian parliamentarians if their job is to oversee the military, they say our job is not to oversee the military. Our job is to hold the minister to account. And so having the Ombudsman report to the parliament who doesn't do oversight doesn't make a lot of sense to me and that's probably the way i should have phrased it last week darn it oh well <laughs> but uh, you're phrasing it like that now and yeah, yeah. that's still important and you were as well at the briefing to stakeholders on military personnel i think that the chief of military personnel or acting chief of military personnel major general bourgon mm -hmm. and uh, the chief of professional conduct and culture lieutenant general Jenny Carignan, are both giving updates on some of the changes related to the new military ethos, dress code, some of the mm -hmm. newly rolled out measures in support of the broader journey of military culture change. Did you learn anything or were you surprised by any of the announcements made during that briefing? I wasn't able to attend. I had split attention, so I, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have, but I think that you know, the thing that got a lot of media attention was the uniform stuff and developing standards for, for people as opposed to standard, different standards for men and women. So hair length, things like that. I do think they're trying really hard. I think that they're, they're making good strides in some of these areas. I think there was a lot of pushback from people about how serious they were. I still worry about how much of this is being sort of put in a corner. And it's not, you know, whether the whole Canadian forces are doing this or whether it's really just this one new command that's doing the stuff and everybody else is, is just marching on without thinking about it too much. I, I don't think that's fair to them. I think that there's more to it than that. Uh, but I worry a little bit about that. I worry that I've been hearing from other channels that people are just waiting for this thing to blow over. And the last thing I worry about, and I didn't really talk, I didn't really ask about it because that was not where the conversation was going, which is, I think that the CAF is going to have to get used to more intrusive civilian oversight. And I think that's part of the culture. There's a culture of expecting autonomy. And I think they're going to have to change their culture to, but I don't think they're talk. I don't think the culture conversation that touches that at all. I think it focuses more on, on the gender issues and on sexual misconduct and not the abuse of power and not the misuse of autonomy that we've, we've seen the past year. So I'm not exactly sure that the things I care about are really going to be addressed by this, but I'm also not surprised by that either because of 
how we've been talking about culture for the past year? I think there is more potential in new measures like the revised ethos mm. to address new principles of, of leadership based on the sexual misconduct crisis that we've seen unfolding over the past two years, which is really tied to questions of abuse of power, as you said. So, you know, you're right when it comes to questions of diversity and create an inclusive culture, some of the issues that were highlighted during the briefing, and that's my reading of it, having read the coverage of what was said rather than having been in the virtual room, you know, like dress code is not going to necessarily address the, the problems of abuses of power, but it, it can contribute to a more inclusive culture. So it, it is one small piece of the puzzle. I, I saw also that there was some discussion on the uh, underrepresentation of women, but not just the underrepresentation of women, also the broader recruitment and retention challenges. And there was a, a link drawn there between some of the new measures that are being adopted and recruitment and retention. And that's where I have my doubts. I'm not sure that recruitment and retention, well, especially recruitment, I'm not sure that recruitment will necessarily be affected by some of these new measures that are being rolled out that I think only a, a small portion of the audience is actually paying attention to. I think to be broadly successful in recruitment, you need a, a much wider strategy than, than fixing internal problems. And so we'll see, you know, after COVID and after this sexual misconduct crisis, it's clear that there is a huge shortage of, of personnel. How to address that is not only by fixing the culture. There really needs to be a new approach to recruitment to, to boost those numbers. And then I also saw that they were talking about that number that, that you mentioned too, that that shortfall of, you know, the way they say it is that the trained effective strength is, is down by 7,600 mm -hmm. personnel was confirmed as a number. So I, I guess those trends are becoming further entrenched. And I wonder if the current war in Ukraine will affect recruitment in the mm -hmm. long term, because when there's a sense of heightened threat internationally, that can also galvanize attention and draw attention to the military as a, as a meaningful profession with a clear purpose when there's you know, a clear sense of threat. So there, there's been a lot, you know, there's been some domestic crises and uptick in domestic operations. There's been COVID-19 that's affected the military in unique ways. And then the military has been very preoccupied with the, the sexual misconduct crisis and the, and the fallout from that and the necessary culture change that is beginning to be implemented. But a lot of uncertainty, I suppose, from a military personnel standpoint. Yeah, I did offer one idea to Parliament about the recruitment situation, which is how about we make recruitment a pathway to citizenship? And it got absolutely no play in the room. Did get more play on Twitter where people thought it was interesting, but raised the problem of security clearances. But if the United States can manage to do it, I think we can figure out a way to do it too. And, and that would allow us to be, have a more diverse force too. But it's going to be a tough problem. And I think another prof problem they're going to face is simply that it's a good job market. It's hard, you know, you can get better paid to live in a place that you have control over without having to move 25 times and live in the you know remote parts of Canada. You can instead live in or near a major city with a job that pays better and doesn't have quite the same physical toll as being in the military. So I think the good job market is going to be a challenge for the CAF no matter what. And I, I don't know if there's any way around it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more personnel front. You said there's going to be uh, another round of testimony in, in front of parliament. Mm -hmm. on personnel. So, so they'll look, talk to experts like you on that. Hopefully they'll, they'll be a little more outside the box thinking on this. Yeah. It'll be on recruitment and retention specifically. Speaking of jobs, 
this is going to be the worst segue attempt ever, but someone gets to keep their job for a little longer, and that's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg <laughs> at NATO. <laughs> His job got extended an additional year until 2023, given the current environment NATO was facing, which is a crisis environment, trying to figure out their next move in this war that's now hit that one month milestone. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a triple summit in Brussels last week. So we're used to NATO summits, either that are held annually or biannually. And now this was a, an extraordinary summit in Brussels. And there was still a, a communique of sorts that was issued a declaration from the heads of states of all 30 members. And it was interesting to see that the reinforcements were announced and confirmed. So Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia are joining the, the Baltic states and Poland in terms of receiving or hosting battle groups rather on their territory. So now there's 40,000 troops on the Eastern flank. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask you in a second what you thought of the statement and some of the measures that were announced, but I was particularly struck by the emphasis on the CBRNE threat. So chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threat, not only you know, as an attempt to, to deter Putin from considering these options, but also as the new focus of aid and equipment that will be sent to Ukraine. What did you think, Steve, of the declaration or of the summit? I think it was symbolically important to have uh, an extraordinary summit that they pulled together in a very short period of time to demonstrate unity. I think that Putin, once again, miscalculated that when he attacks to the you know, Ukraine, whether it's 2014 or 2022, he does more to unify the alliance than to break it apart. And so as a result, we're going to see more NATO troops and more efforts to have long lasting bases in the East. I think there are multiple mentions that the NATO-Russia Founding Act, that was an agreement between NATO and Russia in 1997, is dead because it had all kinds of conditions about cooperation. And in exchange, we would not be putting troops or bases near, near Russia, but it's dead because Russia has violated the terms of the agreement. And so you might actually see some discussion about permanent basing. Uh, you might change the name of enhanced forward presence to something that is a little more permanent than a presence. The Germans, I don't think, are going to stand in the way of that anymore. I think the battle groups themselves that were announced are not quite as significant as the one in the Baltics because it's really going to be these countries that already had troops in those countries saying, we're now a NATO battle group. And if you insert a few hundred Americans or a few hundred Brits or a few hundred French people, we're now a NATO battle group. I don't think it's going to be quite the same level of, of integration and cooperation that you've seen in the Baltics. Maybe we'll get there someday, but it's really going to be much more lopsided, uh, where it's really going to be a large number of Slovaks, a large number of Hungarians, a large number of Bulgarians, a large number of Romanians. And one of the challenges, of course, is that Hungary is still has leadership that is very much tied to Putin. So I'm not sure how real the Hungarian contribution is going to be. But again, I think it was very meaningful to have them get together and be willing to speak with one voice. And I, I can't help but think that Putin is, you know, looking at this and regretting, well, maybe he doesn't regret, but realizing that this was a mistake. And this is another, another part of the mistake was that NATO is now uh, more solidified. Yeah. Russia wasn't the only country that was targeted by the summit or mini summit declaration. Belarus was also explicitly mentioned and China. So I think there are a lot of warnings that are being articulated to make sure that, that China doesn't help Russia skirt 
the sanctions or that China doesn't provide any weaponry or equipment as Russia finds it harder and harder to push forward with this war. And also, I think NATO is setting some expectations for Madrid, and, and Madrid is where the planned summit is taking place at the end of June and where the alliance is set to adopt a new strategic concept. And of course, there's going to be that, that routine communique from the summit itself too. So I think that this has completely changed the game when it comes to what we can expect from this strategic concept. Had we had this discussion in the fall, and maybe we did on this podcast, what the strategic concept should look like, what should be the framing document for NATO's next 10 years. It would have been very different had it been drafted last fall versus this summer. And so the new strategic reality that NATO finds itself in is really going to be baked into this new strategic concept that really articulates the orientations uh, of the alliance for a significant period of time. And the other thing we can certainly expect from the Madrid summit, and I hope that we get to go on the margins, uh, is <laughs> additional pressure for that 2% pledge. And that was also mentioned in last week's statement that you know countries are going to be looking for ways to implement that pledge by the deadline. So countries like Canada, for instance, that aren't meeting that 2% mark uh, will feel increasing political pressure to do so. So we'll see with the budget announcement that should come soon, whether Canada is only announcing an increase or actually saying something more specific about that NATO 2% pledge. What do you think will happen on that front as far as Canada is concerned? Will we follow in Germany's footsteps? I think we're certainly going to make progress I don't think we're going to get to 2%. I just think that, that you know, the math of it, it's increasing the defense budget by 50%. That's five zero percent Dave Perry has estimated that's like 15, 16, $17 billion a year. It's not just a one-time outlay. It's a lot of money. And we have challenges about how to spend the money. On the other hand, today's announcement about choosing F-35 means we'll be spending some money soon because that's one of the things that we're going to spend money on is, is buying the planes and then maintaining them and, and, and flying them. So that's all going to be pretty expensive. So we're making progress there, but I don't think we're going to get to 2% anytime too soon. But I think what we're asking and what we're being asked to do is make progress. And I think that's, that's what we need to do. And I think we're going to make progress. And that decision was, it was a big, a big moment in all of that. It was certainly a long time coming. I'm very excited about the feature interview. We're uh, actually recording it tomorrow because we wanted to be as close as possible to the, the release date of the podcast. So we'll be hearing from Christophe Fortigué, who is a, a Canadian OSC monitor. Uh, so as you know, he's no longer uh, in Ukraine as part of that OSC special mission uh, in the country because he was called back and pulled out out uh, right before the, the invasion, but he was working in Kharkiv uh, until then, and he's got some unique insights both locally and, and internationally about the key milestones of that special mission to Ukraine. So I really look forward to sharing this interview and for Christophe to share his experiences and how those experiences shaped his understanding of Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation and I'm really glad that you're, you're having this conversation with this individual. I think we can definitely learn a lot from this perspective. All right, Steve. Well, 
As always, at the tail end of that interview, we'll have your R&R segment. But for now, I'm wishing you safe travels to Nashville, and I will go and have some barbecue. Enjoy your barbecue. Say hello to our mutual friend when you hang out with him. Uh, hopefully, he will not take you on any ski runs that will damage your knees. And enjoy the conference. Thank you, Steve. See you soon. For our feature interview today, we have Christophe Fortiguet, who joined the OSCE's special monitoring mission to Ukraine in 2017 and served as a lead political advisor to the mission's leadership in Donbass. Last year, he was promoted acting deputy team leader of the Kharkiv monitoring team. And on February 1st of this year, he was appointed acting team leader of the Kharkiv monitoring team. Prior to his deployment to eastern Ukraine, he assisted the Director of International Cooperation of the French Ministry of Interior, and from 2012 to 2014, he was the Senior Advisor to the Minister of International Relations and Foreign Trade of Quebec. Christophe's full bio is available in our show notes, but I'll add that Christophe and I are also old friends. We were on the same debate team in CEGEP, and I'll age us by specifying that this was 20 years ago. Here's the interview. Christophe, I'm very happy to be able to connect with you today. I wish it were under different circumstances, but thank you for taking some of your time to join me on Battle Rhythm to talk about your experience at the OSCE and the Russian war in Ukraine. Welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank you very much, Tiffany. I'm honored to be there with you today. And you are calling in from Paris today. Uh, you had to leave Ukraine in February. We'll get to that moment in time, but let's start by providing our listeners with some context on the OSCE special monitoring mission in Ukraine and the different roles you have played as part of this mission since you joined in 2017. Uh, yes, thank you, Stephanie. So the special monitoring mission to Ukraine is, as you know, an unarmed civilian mission. It's, it's a big mission. It's a 1,320 people. So it's the largest OSCE mission ever. Uh, you have around 690 monitors across Ukraine, 500 of which were in the east. And then we also have 43 USC participating states that send staff. And we have almost 500 national staff, so Ukrainian staff, who are working with us to make this work. There's an additional 150 other international staff, which can be chief monitor, deputies, advisors, and analysts. So that's also something and, uh, and Canada is a big contributor. It is not well known, but there's at least 27, depending, we went up to, uh, at some point we were 40. So 40 Canadians that were deployed there via partnership between Canada and Global Affairs Canada. Now, what we do, this mission, and what it was doing until quite recently, was to report the facts as we observe and establish them. It gathers information and reports on the security situation. It reports also on humanitarian situation and people's needs, so through referrals, for example. And we do facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid to other from other organizations. And uh, lastly, we also help to establish dialogue and local ceasefire along the contact line. It's important to understand because it's what the mission does, but let's also talk about what it doesn't do. 
because there's a lot of confusion about the mission's mandate and what it can do. It's up to the sides to stop the fighting. So this is not a peacemaking mission, a peace enforcing mission. We do not conduct investigation. So we're not there also to investigate rather than just report fact. And we don't deliver, but we facilitate the delivery of humanitarian aid as well. So other more specialized organizations do that. In terms of my role, in the special monitoring mission. Well, I joined the mission on December 1st, 2017 as a monitoring officers on, on the contact line. We all start, uh, most of us start as monitoring officers in the East, especially when you're Canadian. I was deployed in a town called Severodonets, which is, was at the time the official capital of the government control area of the Lugans Oblast. I served in the Bravo team, it was called, which covered basically the Eastern and Southeastern quadrants. So Novaida, Shastia, which, uh, there's an important power plant there, and uh, Shastia uh, uh, sorry, and Stanislav Luanska Bridge is also part of that, which is the only entry exit checkpoint in the region. And as you know, this bridge is highly symbolic because despite being blown up in 2015, thousands of civilians would cross it every day and would cross over several miles of kilometers. Uh, it became a symbol of the hardship of this conflict caused said civilians. It was restored in November 2019, thanks to the mediation effort led by the Slovak OEC chairmanship. But when you see Western delegation going to the contact line, for example, is that bridge that's usually the highlight of the visit. Work was varied at the time from patrolling the bridge, as I said, to chasing Ukrainian T-72 after say, uh, an unannounced training exercise. Early 2018, I was promoted to a lead political analyst based this time in Lugansk, so in the Lugansk People's Republic. As political analysis, not really envisioned in mission core tasking, but after the surprise uh, November 2017 coup, what we call the coup of the two Igor, we can come back to that at some point, it was decided that we should uh, reinforce our capacities, if only to have a better understanding of the security environment we operated in. I advised the team leadership uh, before, during and after our meetings with the so-called governments, and we worked on uh, solving local issues, broker localized ceasefires, and so on. It was also there to observe and report on uh, nation-building efforts made by these quasi-states, how power there uh, would organize itself, party creation, their link to Russia, how they would try or attempt to structure civil society. The issue of Russian passportization as well was a big uh, issue while I was there. Another important task also was to look into and understand the, how the economy had been set up in face of Ukrainian economic blockade 2015 and, of course, international sanctions. So as reported by the Americans, for example, in 2018, there's been a, a monopoly that had been created with a single management structure called Véro Chervis, who took over everything that made money in those quasi-republics, so cash cows, we call them, in Donbass. Uh, many factories and mines had been seized by the so-called authorities during and after 2015 economic blockade. So... I worked on that. One big example I could give you was how Service handled the cold business to Russia and other communities flow coming into Donbass, so like fuel and construction material, and uh, with the money transiting via South Ossetia. So the cold from Donbass was the exact same chemical making composition as the one found in Rostov region in Russia. So that coal was shipped to Russia, then sold back to Ukraine via the EU with a 300 profit margin. And most of these profits were kept by select few and, and their FSB handlers. The rest was poured back into the Donbass economy. 
That was one of the interesting thing I worked on, seeing it firsthand in those, those territory. By March 2019, I, I took over another appointment, this time with the Hakiv monitoring team, uh, a new function called coordinator of the reporting and political analysis units. And this happened in an interesting context of the Ukrainian 2019 presidential and right after parliamentary elections. The management believe, and rightly so, that uh, Hakiv was a strategic place that we ought to increase our capacities there. A former capital, Kharkiv, was the second largest city in Ukraine. It's 30 kilometers away from the Russian border and uh, neighboring Lugansk and Donetsk in Donbass. So with Dnipro city, the two were a strategic zone, we said that we're at the gate of the conflict. Kharkiv had been among the first city to fall back in 2014. It briefly became 48 hours the Kharkiv People's Republic before being taken back by Ukrainian special forces. 80% of the region population speaks Russian. It's a very interesting place to study, say, the effect of Ukrainian language, more broadly, the question of Ukrainian identity and how the east of the country defines itself in relations to Russia. And lastly, in early 2021, I was elevated to senior management, taking the role of uh, deputy and since uh, January uh, 2022, team leader of the Hakiv office. That means I supervise 22 staff, the area of responsibility covering three regions, Kharkiv, Sumy, and Poltava, roughly the size of Austria, uh, including 800 kilometers of border with Russia. Top topics covered include the general security situation, of course, which became very tense at the start of December, the Russian military buildup. Obviously, we monitored only the Ukraine side of the border. And on the political side, the general political stability in Kharkiv, Sumy, and Poltava, nationalist versus pro-Russian tensions, local and regional reaction to the stalemate in the Minsk trilateral contact group, public opinion on Minsk agreement, major reforms like land reform, decentralization, so on and so forth, economic protests, which are also big. And lastly, of course, the uh, human dimension side. So uh, a lot of IDPs in Kharkiv, there will be more uh, language law, minority rights, Russian minority, religious fair, and so on. So in a nutshell, these were the, the various roles that I occupied inside the mission. And since you opened the door to it, I'll follow up immediately about this coup of the two Igors. Can you provide a bit more context on how significant that event was? It's part, I would say, of, of the key milestones that I noticed since I joined the mission back in December. So that happened just in the month before I arrived. I was in training when that happened. And it was a coup in Lugansk between two Igor. One was Igor Plotnitsky, who was the head of the Lugansk People's Republic since the ratification of Minsk. And the other was Igor Kornet, which was the Minister of Interior. And so he chased the first, the, the later chased the first. And it was interesting because, again, we didn't really have any political uh, analysis capabilities then in the field. And, uh, and I thought it was an interesting event because it kind of like brought to bear the need to have such kind of political analysis on what's going on. What it really changed also was because at the start of 2014, the, the conflict, you really had three power structures in Lugansk. You had the Cossacks, which kind of disappeared or became irrelevant following several losses at the end of the Ukrainian armed forces. But then you had two kind of power structure left, kind of like tugs and what you say, like contraband people, which uh, the head of which was, was Igor Plotnitsky. And then you had the famous Siloviki members who were from the security apparatus. So Igor Kornet, but also Leonid Pashesnik, 
who then became the actual uh, head of, of LPR. And they were all coming from security background, secret service, uh, Ukraine secret service, and so on, and presumably were in, in contact with Russian secret service as well. And that coup, what it, what it changed was basically went from three to two to one really dominating group in terms of power. Okay, well, let's build on that then, because from your work on the contact line, and then as a political analyst, and after your time in Kharkiv, you have a very unique vantage point with regards to how local dynamics have evolved in Donbass, but also how diplomacy at the international level impacted those local dynamics. And you provided some context just now, but when reflecting back on the chronology of the mission, what were some of of those key turning points, or as you say, milestones, according to you, if we really take a look from 2014 to the present? I'm sorry, that's a big ask, but I really want to see how you break it down. Yeah, but great question, uh, Stephanie. It's more like perhaps personal point of views. What I find are the milestones. I mean, of course, there's the big milestone that we know 2014, 2015, which were the Minsk agreement, which it's important to say that the mission arrived in Ukraine before those Minsk agreements. But of course, the whole mandate then, when those accords were signed, the whole mandate then revolved around these because the, the, the primary role, if you will, of the mission was then to basically oversee the implementation or at least report on the implementation of these agreements. Uh, on one side at the diplomatic level to the trilateral contact groups which chaired by the OSCE, but also on in the field, with regards to violations with the Minsk agreement, since they, you know, several requirements were made, and it was up to the monitor of the OSCE to report on, on whether these were respected or not, chiefly, of course, the ceasefire, but then other more detailed uh, things, such as the positions of heavy weapons in regards to the contact line and so on and so forth. So these were clearly the, the big dates that I could jump fast forward to because there's quite a few, but I could fast forward to when I arrived to the mission. So the coup is definitely one for me as it changed our dynamic, our approach in the field, in the mission, especially in Donbass. Then quickly, um, in December 2017, was, I believe, an important moment as well, because this is when Russia withdrew its participation from the Joint Center for Control and Coordination, what we call JCCC. This was an important mechanism which allowed Ukraine and Russia talk about what's going on in the field and, uh, and intervene to, uh, to try to uh, stop fighting in certain areas. So one concrete example would be that we were in the field, they start shooting, we call the JCCC, and then on both sides, they call their, their units, uh, their commanders, and basically we try to stop the fighting immediately. And this is, of course, only to maintain the ceasefire, but to protect civilians on the ground. So when the Russia withdrew, from that, it became very complicated because we were missing a side, basically, and not necessarily a side of the conflict. Because 2017, we still uh, entertain uh, some some nuance about Russia being a party of conflict, obviously. But uh, this was widely seen rather as an attempt to force Ukraine to deal directly with the Lugansk and Donetsk People Republic, and they've tried ever since to have this kind of mechanism. But uh, clearly, it's it's been a real problem when it comes to a ceasefire. Another milestone would be early 2018 when we observed new Ukrainian fortification in one of the disengagement areas. Disengagement areas are zoned two kilometers in length and two kilometers wide, where 
you're not supposed to have any sorts of military presence. And the, the idea behind this, it's from the OEC, it's basically if you keep them apart far enough, you reduce the risk of, of flare-ups on the contact line. Because the way it starts, usually it's, it's a sad thing at that time, I meant, uh, not obviously today, but one drunk soldier would start shooting with his gun and then the other one would respond with, with a machine gun and then it's grenade launcher. And then soon enough, uh, you've got RPGs and, and artillery barrage and tanks and so on and so forth. So the more you keep them away from each other, the, the more chances you had that you know, they would be a calm on, on the contact line. So that kind of like put a lot of stress on the mission as well when these disengagement areas were re-engaged. And we worked a lot diplomatically to try to get people to recommit to those. Then another timeline was, again, 2018, 31st of August, the assassination of DPR leader Alexander Zakarchenko. It was a big deal because he was one of the leader of the quasi-republic there since 2014. Of course, they accused Ukraine of being behind it. But more likely, my theory at least, is that it was an inside job by, by a man called Sergei Kruchenko who used to be the, the wallet of Yanukovych, Ukrainian, ousted Ukrainian president. And uh, he was in charge of this channel, uh, this flux between the Donbass and Russia, because he was basically a refugee in Moscow. And he, was, he had a monopoly on everything that went in and out of the Republic. And uh, my understanding was that Zakarchenko thought that he, his size of the pie was a bit too big and that more money should be coming to the people of Donetsk. And then and, uh, Kurchenko and others in Russia thought that uh, Zakashenko was wrong, and so they got rid of him. But that was an important turning point because it was interesting to see again who would take over in, in Donetsk and how the, the management of those quasi-republic would kind of be uh, streamlined a bit like what happened in, in Lugansk. Then if you look at 2018-2018, uh, one of the uh, important things was what we call the Ukrainian creeping advance on the line of contact. So we were just before an election, and obviously the Ukrainians wanted some win. And so you saw the Ukrainian army trying to gain some ground in what we call the gray zone uh, on the line of contact. But again, we think it's, it's more linked to the uh, election, but that creates some flare-ups and played into Zelensky's discourse of I'm going to bring peace, whereas Poroshenko was, was described more as a warmonger. So, so that, that's an interesting point. Then 2019 was a busy year with the arrival, of course, of Zelensky and a complete change of the political landscape. And it was all about trying to understand now that we have a new president who wanted to commit to peace, obviously, uh, and, and, and do all it takes, how we would it go with the Russians, how would it go with the army, his own Ukrainian army, and what we do with all these, these new politicians who most of them had no political experience. So how would that play out in negotiation and so on? So an interesting year, uh, culminating, of course, perhaps October 2019 with uh, the uh, resignation of U.S. Special Envoy Kurt Volker was a very important man in negotiation because he was in charge, basically, of the U.S.-Russia second-track diplomacy, which had started between him and Vladislav Surkov, and which would then be replaced by a man called Dmitry Kozak. But, I mean, Kurt Volker kind of structured the Ukrainian position in those negotiations at the TCG, very vocal uh, in favor of Ukraine, and he basically resigned over Trump impeachment trial. So that was a loss kind of for Ukraine. And then you could see that the Ukrainian strategy from that moment on, October 2019, was a bit more complicated than negotiation. The French started to take over, basically, in December 2019. 
which with basically the Paris summit, which was, and I can't say that, the first Normandy format since October 2016. So three years have passed since you had a Normandy format, which is the only format where you see heads of states, you know, Vladimir Putin, Macron, Merkel at the time, and, uh, and Zelensky. So that was a big moment. There were a few breakthroughs in that summit in Paris uh, with, for example, at least three new disengagement areas were promised. And that kind of opened the year on a hopeful note because people were saying, well, there's been a Normandy format, so now we need to see progress in terms of um, negotiation. 2019 also saw the arrival of a new chief monitor, also a Turkish ambassador, Yasar Ali Chevik, which, uh, of course, was interesting in terms of dynamic within the mission. If we skip now to February 2020, uh, another important point was when Russia appointed Dmitry Kosak, which was the deputy Kremlin chief staff, to replace an interesting figure called Vladislav Surkov, often described as the great cardinal in Ukraine. And Kosak was a very different man than, than, than uh, Vladislav Surkov. And that changed the Russian negotiating line. There was a breakthrough, though, uh, in July 2020, a new ceasefire, the eighth ceasefire agreement since 2018. But it came with additional measure, this one, on retaliatory fire, usage of drones, which had become quite a problem, snipers, so on. And I'm proud to say that two Canadians worked on that and were instrumental in that. And uh, this, this was the most successful and then still the most successful ceasefire that we've, saw, we've seen since this mission that was in Ukraine. And this ceasefire would last at least uh, a year and a half almost. And then another milestone, very important milestone, is, of course, the election of Joe Biden in November 2020. And we can come back to that, but that creates some changes, some expectations, especially on the Ukraine side. Then 2021. I have to say we saw a general deterioration of the security situation and a total blockage of, of the diplomatic track, boat tracks, basically because the U.S.-Russia track never really resumed until January 2021 or a bit before. And you, you saw a change in Russian posture in December 2021, of course, with uh, this uh, military buildup. It was the second military buildup, but this one was more massive than, than the previous one, of course. And then... Stephanie, you know the rest. Yeah, I do. And thank you for that overview, because Steph, it's very useful to break it down in that way. And let's focus on the more recent past now. In early February, you were told to leave Kharkiv, to leave the country. Some of your colleagues left also, but not everyone got out. Some people chose to stay as well. What has it been like for you? I imagine it has been incredibly difficult seeing all of this unfold over the past weeks. I won't lie to you, Stephanie. It has been very difficult, but I still consider myself one of the lucky ones. It's important to understand that there's two ways for us to be evacuated in terms of international mission members, because we have two bosses, if you will. One of my bosses is Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, and my other boss is, of course, the Chief Monitor of the OEC mission. The idea was always that we would be evacuated at the same time as a mission. And I was working on those evacuation plans. But there was a real disagreement between, I'd say, some countries that are a bit more risk-averse, the Anglo-Saxons, and, and other European countries over um, how real this threat was and, and uh, whether Vladimir Putin would indeed uh, go ahead with, with a full-scale invasion. 
And even that, that was not really a scenario. So whatever the Americans shared with the Canadian was enough to convince Minister Jolie to act. And um, I'd, I'd been part of the uh, dinner organized by the Ukraine ambassador, Canadian ambassador to Ukraine with Melanie Jolie. So I'd met her and I was quite lucky to receive a text message. I thought it was a, a nice move gesture from her on February the 13th, very early in the morning, telling me she had given the order to pull out the Canadians. And this came after the U.S. pullout, because a week before, I was in charge of a big uh, delegation, the chairman in office, Minister Rao from Poland, who had come to visit Kharkiv. Everything was business as usual. But then we learned that the American decided that uh, the, the threat was imminent and that they, they decided to pull their people. And they did so very quickly, followed by the British on Saturday. And then, of course, on Sunday, so I, I get this message from Melanie Jolie, and, and in the coming days, it was confirmed, of course, uh, to the mission leadership. And that was, that was a big moment, because um, with the departure of Americans, British, and Canadians, the senior management of the mission was, was of course, uh, diminished quite a lot. And especially in the office where I was, Kharkiv, where we had a lot of Canadians. And so from there, it was all about evacuating. So it was an order. It's not like uh, we could stay behind. Some of us wanted to stay behind saying, well, you know, those who feel are at risk should leave and those who want to stay should, should, should stay knowing the risk, of course, and wait until the mission evacuates. So there was, but this was not negotiable. And ultimately, of course, looking back, it was the right decision. Quite happy that, uh, that Milani Jolie gave that. But we were the lucky ones in that respect because... Afterwards, we evacuated, I evacuated around the 15th of February, uh, but my team stayed behind. Most of my team obviously stayed behind. And when uh, Russia invaded on the 24th, Kharkiv was one of the primary targets. And they were stuck there for several days, a week, unable to uh, evacuate, even though the Secretary General with, with the Chief Mayor had given the order to evacuate, my team was stranded. So was another team uh, in Kherson in particular. It was very complicated. So these teams were stuck for more than a week under the shelling. And then on, on March 1st, there was a missile strike right on the uh, Kharkiv Regional Administration, State Administration building. The decision was taken to get out at this point. And we did. But it's important to know that this convoy left Kharkiv, all, all, what was left of, of the international mission members and some national mission members as well, left under shelling. And it was, uh, I, owe, I owe a lot to uh, the courage of uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Olga Skripovskaya, who was officer in charge replacing me because I'd been evacuated. And she led them to safety all the way to Moldova from Kharkiv, which for your listeners is a four-day drive. It took four days because of the traffic on the highways and the risks and everything of driving at night, and the lineup, of course, at, at the frontier. So uh, I owe a lot to that woman for keeping <clears throat> my staff safe. Now, of course, we had national staff as well who decided that because of many reasons. Some had family members, some had close relatives in, 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 in their, ha their house, their home. They didn't want to leave, or some of them had already left after 2014 in Lugansk. So uh, they were already IDPs, internally displaced people, and didn't want to go through this again, or they thought that this, this would cease quickly, or that Kharkiv would be spared, but no. So many of them left behind, and that became extremely difficult for us who were outside looking at them, but for them, of course, who were staying there. I lost a mission member, 
to Russian bombing. And uh, that, that was a, a very difficult moment that happened. <clears throat> As I said, we, we successfully evacuated all the internationals in that week, uh, starting March 1st. But then many, many national staff left behind. Uh, the mission priority soon became to, to get as many people from their national staff either out or relocate them to the West. And this, this has been a tremendous undertaking by the uh, senior management mission and, and everyone involved in this from ops to the people on, on, on the ground. And I, and I have to say that we're, it's still ongoing, doing the best we can. And a lot was done, but it's very difficult because, of course, uh, you're, you're out and you see your colleagues who are still in. And, uh, and it's difficult. There's also a long conscription that, uh, of course, makes it that any male Ukrainian of a certain age, 18 to 60, cannot leave the country. And so uh, a lot of my, uh, my staff are still there, unable to leave or, yeah, unable to leave, basically. So it's a tough moment, personally. But overall, the evacuation was successful. And, and I'm very grateful for that. An amazing job was done, uh, for sure. Steph, I'm so sorry that some of your team members were in harm's way and that you lost people. Speaking as your friend now, I'm so grateful you got out when you did. And tell me, what's next for the OSCE now and for the mission? Uh, well, the question is, is up in the air, of course, but I think no one is questioning the relevance, the importance of this mission. And generally, uh, the OSCE as a whole, as an organization, which as it was pointed out in an excellent international crisis group commentary by Alicia Vartanian and I think David Lance, that it is the only remaining multilateral space outside the UN for dialogue between Russia and the West. Obviously, some, some, some critics will say the OEC was created to avoid what we've seen today, but you know it's, it's still part of the solution as far as I'm concerned. I think that the OEC is, is one of the few international organizations with the potential to play an important role in implementing any ceasefire arrangement that the conflict parties might reach. We, we had some positive news coming out of Turkey today. Of course, we have to be very prudent with that. But, but I do believe that the OEC will be back to, to ensure whatever cease, the implementation of whatever ceasefire arrangement is, is found Hopefully, because this conflict ends through a negotiated solution, that, that's our hardest uh, wish. Now, in terms of the mission future, obviously, mandate now needs to be reviewed. That's, that's a given. But I was, as it was pointed out, the, the negotiation on mandate needs to be wrapped up by the 31st of March. That's in two days. So we'll see how these goes. My, my understanding is that right now, of course, it's, it's still blocked, but there are ways, uh, technical ways to kind of keep this mission alive or put it in, in hibernation mode. That's, that's the kind of buzzword right now to try to preserve it as a legal entity and to keep it operational in order to allow for rapid reactivation, because that's what we wish for. We have all these trained monitors all these structures, this presence in Ukraine in all major cities, still there are offices, our gear that remains in those, those, uh, those offices, obviously. So we could redeploy it very quickly if tasked or mandated to do so. But let's see. Uh, we'll have an answer to that for sure in, in the coming week, and if not, in next month on where this mission goes. And 
and what replaces this mission, which I believe is, is the most probable outcome, a new mission or a revamped mission, depending on, on how things end in, in the field. Well, we'll certainly be tracking very closely in the coming days and weeks. And I want to go back to something you said earlier when you were running through the milestones. You mentioned Biden's election. So let's talk about the role of the great powers and of international diplomacy. From your perspective, could France, Germany, and the U.S. have done anything more to prevent the war? It's a tough question. I don't believe so, to be quite honest. Looking more like as a like as an analyst these past days. And it is the most surprising fact. As you mentioned, I'm in Paris right now. I have some friends that work for the Minister of Foreign Affairs and, and people who were dealing with this at the Elysee Palace. I spoke to them. And, and until the very end, there was a belief around President Macron that diplomatic efforts were going to yield results, that Macron's initiative with the backing of German Chancellor Scholz, but also President Biden, that day we were going to come up with a big conference, a summit with President Putin, and all the topics, all the subjects are going to be on the table. So the French are still a bit shocked uh, from what I see here in Paris, trying to understand you know, that Putin was going to get what he wanted to some extent, or at least there would be discussion on that, and there would be a, a real diplomatic outcome. Uh, so why then seek to achieve these outcomes through military means? And, and people still don't really have an answer for that. I mean, I know a lot of commentators speculate on, on many things, but here we don't really understand why after being so close of getting what you want diplomatically, why would you, you know, go at it militarily speaking? And that perhaps speaks to the level of distrust now that we're seeing between the West and Russia which of course is going to get worse now. I don't see U.S.-Russia relationship mending, even if, if a negotiated outcome comes. I think they're broken for a long time. And that's dangerous because it is, it is a feeling for someone who's observed Cold War and, and, and or at least studied it. We are in a situation now where channels of communication or, or even worse now that they've been at, at the worst moment of the Cold War. So nothing good is, is really going to come out of it. There's going to be a lot of speculation more broadly on what it means strategically for global politics. As you know, in terms of alliance, you're, you're an expert on, on alliances. People like Kissinger spend their entire life trying to make sure that the U.S. would have a better relationship with Russia and better relationship with China than Russia and China together. Because the, the, the nightmare scenario would be China, who is the real peer competitor of the U.S., allied uh, with Russia. And, and this is what's, what's happening now, and, and we don't really see a different outcome for that. And it's, it's an enunciating of, of, of great many changes in global politics. We're still not seeing all the consequences of this invasion, whether it is in the Middle East, on the Iran nuclear deal, on famine, may, maybe in Lebanon and Egypt and because of, of, of wheat and the stock of, of wheat on economics, because yes, uh, sanctions are hurting the Russian economy, but that will also have some costs on West and just on, on kind of the climate that, that, is, that is here. So let's be perfectly clear, the aggressor is responsible for the aggression, and that's Russia. But what happens next and, and what diplomatic efforts are made to preserve you know, world peace and, and, and global stability 
and to make sure we don't stay in what is now resembling the early stage of the Cold War with blocks and everything, that's going to be a, a very interesting thing to look on. And I'm glad we have experts like you, uh, Stephanie, who will, uh, who will shed lights on the matter in, in due time for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're in, in perfect agreement that your analysis is spot on here. And let's zone in on, on Canada for just a second. In the wake of what's happened, one cannot help but to think back on Op Unifier, the Canadian Armed Forces training mission in Ukraine. Do training missions like these make a difference on the ground, in your opinion? Well, some people used to laugh a bit about those training missions, saying that, you know, in, in an open conflict with Russia and, and on, on the battleground, the, the result would be, would be decisive anyway in favor of Russia. But of course, all these prognostics and analysis have been proven wrong. Now we're in a different setting than in open battlegrounds. Most of the time we're in urban combat in siege warfare. So that's different. But clearly, I have to believe that all this training, when you see how, how valiant those are, uh, Ukrainian soldiers and people in general are fighting. I mean, it has to, to do something. I've seen people from Operation Unifer in the field. Uh, I mean, we're working in the west of Ukraine, but also I've seen people in Kharkiv coming to talk about gender studies also in the armed forces. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of women on the battlefield as well. I, I think it, it's, it's a great contribution from Canada, this, uh, this training program. Uh, I also think the Canadian contingent of the SMM is a great contribution of Canada, but it's, it, it serves to show that when Canada decides on a priority and decides to put resources there, it, it can make a difference. It's all about having, you know, choosing your cause, if you will, and having clear priorities. And I have to say that on, on Ukraine, Canada has been very clear from the start and has put money on, on its commitments. No, that's a good point. Christophe, thank you for sharing your perspective with me. It has been a truly fascinating conversation and certainly incredibly valuable for me and for our audience. I'm wishing you the best as you settle in Paris. I hope you will come to Canada for a visit soon, perhaps. But until then, take good care of yourself, Christophe, and I'll have a vesper to your health. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Um, and I hope to speak to you soon. Take care. All right, uh, for today's R&R segment, I've got three different pretty silly things to, to watch. The first is Turning Red. It's the latest Pixar film. It's about a girl who goes through a major change as, as a junior teenager, which leads to tensions with family and friends, and it takes place in Toronto. So it's a very, very Canadian Pixar movie, and it's delightful. It's fun. It's moving. It's all the usual Pixar stuff. Lots of feels, lots of family, lots of fun. The second is Our Flag Means Death. It is a pirate movie and you can get it through Crave. It's on HBO Max, I believe. And it's delightful. It comes from Taiki Watiti, uh, who is given us for Ragnarok. He's given us what we do in the shadows and lots of other really wonderfully silly moving stuff. And this, this particular TV show is silly. It's about a, a gentleman pirate. How can you be a gentleman pirate? Well, you'll have to watch. Finally, as a complete change of pace from everything I've done before, there's I Like Cake. It's a reality TV show. I, have I ever recommended a reality TV show before? Yes, the floor is lava. But this is a very different show. It's about competitive 
realistic cake making. So the bakers have to make cakes that resemble objects, and then judges have to guess which object is is real and which one is cake. So is it cake? Is the show, and uh, I like it. I guess I named it wrong in the first part. Anyway, uh, is it cake? Is the name of the show, and it is silly, and I recommend it to you. Be well. Hopefully you can uh, enjoy the less restrictions, but still be careful. I know I'll be mask wearing as I venture deep into the American South in Nashville. Take care.